You're, you're, you're listening to the Worldwide Sports Radio Network. Broadcasting from coast to coast, city to city, coast to coast. It's time for the Ryan Hickey Show on the Worldwide Sports Radio Network. If it's happening in sports, it's being talked about right here. And here's your host, Ryan Hickey. Good Thursday morning. Welcome on in to the Ryan Hickey Show Worlds for the Worldwide Sports Radio Network. Appreciate you making us a part of your Thursday morning as always. And as a reminder, we are coming to you live from the Big Italy Pizzeria Studios. Now, whether it's great pizza, hot heroes, and phenomenal dinners, make sure you check out BigItalyPizza.com to find a location near you. A very, very busy show. So why waste any time? Let's jump right in. All right. So yesterday, the NFL has decided to appeal Deshaun Watson's six-game suspension. And now either Roger Goodell or someone he appoints is going to hand down the NFL's punishment for Deshaun Watson. With the NFL appealing, with the NFL basically not agreeing with Sue Robinson's decision, I think there's only one thing for Deshaun Watson. There's only one thing for the Cleveland Browns to do. Settle. Settle with the NFL. Come up with a, a number of games that both sides can agree to and try to prevent what I think is going to be inevitable for Deshaun Watson missing the 2022 season. Settling is the quickest way for Watson to get back on the field. And if you're the Browns, it's really the only way to salvage the 2022 season. Because I don't think it's pretty, you know, we don't have to go too far on a limb here to say, with the NFL appealing the six-game suspension and making whatever ruling they want to make, it seems like it's going to be a suspension of at least a year. You have plenty of reports, including Jeff Darlington of ESPN, who is putting out there yesterday, the NFL is seeking what their initial punishment was, uh, which is an indefinite suspension of at least a year, a significant fine, and Deshaun Watson would have to reapply for instatement, or I'm sorry, you have to apply for reinstatement after the 2022 season. So this suspension could last, in theory, even longer than just 2022 if the NFL is not happy with the progress Deshaun Watson is making, or maybe he's not following the steps the NFL wanted him to follow in terms of getting back into the league. That is what Deshaun Watson right now is facing. He is facing an indefinite suspension of at least a year and a significant fine as well. So that's why if you are the Browns, if you're Deshaun Watson, you can claim your innocence. You could say you've done nothing wrong. You got to settle. When it comes to strictly football decisions and doing what is best for your playing career and doing what is best for the Cleveland Browns in order for them to have success in 2022, the best route is settling. Because the option now for the NFLPA and Deshaun Watson is this. Deshaun Watson could allow Roger Goodell or whoever he appoints to make this decision, they could allow them to make said decision. Let's just say it's a year. Okay, boom, the NFL announces year-long suspension for Deshaun Watson. Well, there is one card up the sleeve for Deshaun Watson and the NFL Players Association they could use, and that is taking the NFL to court. They could sue. They could send this decision to federal court. And they could have the courts decide if the NFL is allowed to implement a full-season suspension. Here's the problem with that, though, if you are Deshaun Watson. The NFL, or the, the courts, I should say, 
are not judging whether the NFL and the 17-game, or let's say 17-game suspension is fair or not. All the courts are really trying to do is say, was the process followed correctly? And in the collective bargaining agreement, the latest one in 2020, both the Players Association and the NFL agreed they'll have an independent arbiter decide initially the punishment, a.k.a. Sue L. Robinson, which she did six games. The NFL is the right to appeal, and their, if they do, their punishment is binding and final. The NFLPA agreed that Roger Goodell or his appointee, if the NFL decides to appeal a decision, their punishment will be basically the last straw, the final verdict. So that is what the courts are determining and are looking at. It's not a judge and a jury sitting there and saying, hmm, does Deshaun Watson deserve 17 games or not? That's not what they're deliberating. They are deliberating the NFL follow the right process in order to get to the suspension. And that answer is going to be yes, because it's written out and agreed upon and signed that the NFL has the right to make the final ruling. So if you were Deshaun Watson, you're the NFL Players Association, and you're the Browns, going to court's not going to do you too, too much good. So that's why if you allow the NFL to make this appeal, if you allow the NFL to make this decision on Deshaun Watson's punishment, he's cooked for 2022, and so are the Browns. The Browns are not winning, you know, going to the playoffs without Deshaun Watson. They're not. I like their roster a lot. It's very talented. It's But the issue is it's too deep of an AFC. And whether it's Jacoby Brissett, whether it's Jimmy Jean, personally, I don't think either are good enough to get Cleveland to the playoffs and truly be a, a viable Super Bowl contender in 2022. So when you look at trying to salvage right now this season, still trying to not have a blow up in your face if you're the Browns and at least try to be competitive in some way, settling is the only option. Settling is the only way to save the 2022 season if you're Deshaun Watson and more importantly, if you're the Cleveland Browns. Now, look, when we talk about settlement, what could that look like, right? There's reports out there that before um, the NFL and the NFLPA went to Judge Sue L. Robinson, right? Before their cases were heard in front of her, the NFL did have a uh, compromise on the table of a 12-game suspension. That was the, um, the settlement the NFL was willing to go to. 12 games as a punishment for Deshaun Watson. And now there are reports out there, whether it's Albert Breer or Charles Robinson, both are reporting and confirming each other's reports that the NFL, what they're looking at is they really, really, do not want Deshaun Watson going to Houston in week number 12. Week 12 is the Texans game against the Browns in Houston. And the NFL really does not want Deshaun Watson playing there for obvious reasons. So that's why the 12-game um, settlement was thrown out there by the NFL. And that's how the NFL got to 12 games. It's not just picked out of a hat. Uh, let's see, 12 games. Okay. They really kind of circled that Texans game and said, that's not one we are comfortable with. And we really, if we could avoid it, do not want Deshaun Watson going back to Houston again whether it's clearly all the damage he has done there, allegedly, or just the way you know him and the Texans had a major falling out in the last year and a half, it's obvious and clear that the NFL does not think Deshaun Watson going to Houston is the right move uh, for game number 12, and I would agree with the NFL. So if you're Deshaun Watson, you're the Cleveland Browns. You got to think if the 12-game settlement option was on the table before the decision came down, I would still think that 12-game suspension is on the table now, or that 12-game um, settlement is on the table right now as you get set to hear the appeal from the NFL, and I think I would take it. From the Browns on Sean Watson, I would settle right now and sprint to a 12-game suspension because then at least 
you still have some of the season left to salvage. I get it's only five games, but here's what I would do if I was Cleveland. I rush to settle. I try to get 12 games, and then as soon as the 12 games is agreed upon, I'm calling the 49ers saying, what do you want for Jimmy G? Fifth round pick, sixth round pick, I need Jimmy G. Jimmy G is a clear and obvious upgrade over Jacoby Brissett. And for 12 games, Jimmy G can keep the ship afloat. He can keep this season alive for when Deshaun Watson comes back. You hope if you're a Browns fan, he can kind of save the day, get to the playoffs, and then go from there. When you look at the first 12 opponents specifically for the Browns, seven are winnable. You know, we, we looked at the first six games, right, when the initial six-game suspension came down, and you have the Panthers, which you should win. You have the Jets, the Falcons, the Patriots, the Steelers. You have the Texans later on in the year. You have, you know, games against the Dolphins and the Ravens. You have winnable games here on your schedule, especially with how deep your roster is. You should be able to at least compete, especially with Jimmy G as your quarterback. So if you're looking at a 12-game suspension, I think if you're Cleveland, you can realistically say 7-5. and 7-5 is a, a good number for those 12 games, and Deshaun Watson could come back for the final five games. I would say you feel pretty good about your chances to make the playoffs. That's why, for me, 12 games is a number that I would agree to, and that's why if I'm the, NFL, uh, if I'm the Browns, I would say let's get this settled. Because guess what? 12 games is better than a full season. And right now, I don't think the NFL, in imposing their uh, punishment whenever they do, I don't think they'll be going for anything less right now than 12 games if the NFL is allowed to make the full decision on their own. There's no settlement reached beforehand. Because guess what? I'll tell you this right now. The NFL is not scared to go into court. I mentioned before, the only thing left for Deshaun Watson to do if a, uh, if a settlement is not reached with the NFL beforehand is go to court. NFL, here's the thing. They don't lose in court. Ask Tom Brady. Ask Ezekiel Elliott. And frankly, when it comes to, again, on the field playing time and leading to trying to salvage the 2022 season for the Browns, going to court is the worst case scenario for Deshaun Watson and the worst case scenario for the Browns. Not only because the NFL doesn't lose in court. Also, too, I think it delays the inevitable. And now all of a sudden you start to look at a situation that could drag you to 2023, which I think is the worst case scenario. Like, look at just two quickly here, two past precedents with Tom Brady and Ezekiel Elliott, right? Tom Brady, when it came to the Flakegate, he was suspended four games. Tom Brady, the NFLPA, they sued the NFL, took him to court. It took over a year, a year for the courts to decide, is this suspension allowed to be upheld? Some courts threw it out. Others upheld it, reinstated it. And it got to the point where Tom Brady, even though he was allowed to play during, you know, all this time, it took a year. Took a year for them to finally say, you know what, Tom Brady, four games, you got to do it. And he eventually, before he even was ruled, withdrew his uh, legal proceedings and took the four-game suspension in 2016. Ezekiel Elliott, who is a man whose case was used as a precedent for Deshaun Watson's suspension of six games, he was suspended for six games for domestic violence allegations and, and, you know, personal conduct policy violations. He as well took the NFL to court back in 2017. That suspension on a similar time to Watson was handed out in August. Ezekiel Elliott fought it. He was allowed to play while the decision was in court. Again, some judges throughout the suspension said, Ezekiel, it's good to play. 
Others said, no, this is reinstated. You, you know, have to sit this out. It eventually got to the point where in late November, Ezekiel Elliott withdrew his legal proceedings, withdrew the lawsuit, and sat out six games. And that led to not only him losing, but now sitting out games in November and December, which are more important than games in September and October. So it's important to remember, again, the NFL not only doesn't lose in court, you also now, the longer you fight this in court, the more the suspension drags out. And if you're the Browns, that's worst case scenario. Because let's just say, let's just say, Deshaun Watson is suspended for a full season. Well, at least you know after 2022, okay, fine. This season's a wash, but we got Deshaun Watson for four more years, and now we can at least put this behind us and focus on 2023 and beyond. If you go to court and you're sitting there in September, October, November, and even if Deshaun Watson's allowed to play, eventually they're going to lose in court. Eventually this is not going to go their way, and whether the judges eventually overrule the lawsuit or Deshaun Watson realizes, you know what, no more running around. I'm not going to win this. I'm going to pull out, pull out the lawsuit now and just start sending out games. That's going to bleed into 2023, which, again, is the worst-case scenario. This year, Deshaun Watson is going to set out games. That's the reality. Whether it's 6, whether it's 12, whether it's a full season, he is missing time at some point this year. If you're the Browns, you don't want this dragging into 2022 or 2023. You want this only sticking in 2022, which again goes back to a settlement. If you can at least nail down a number less than a year, you're still able uh, able to salvage some point uh, this season. And you don't allow this to drag into next year. That should be the motivation for Deshaun Watson. That should be the motivation for the Browns, which is why, again, I go back to settling as the best option for the Browns and Deshaun Watson. 12 games, sign it up right now, big fine. Pay the money, deservingly so, by the way. I think the NFL is right in appealing. I think the NFL is right in trying to impose a full season ban. I'm with the uh, the NFL 100% here. When it comes to on the field, right, how this impacts the Browns for 2022, they need their quarterback out there to compete. I think the only way you're going to get your quarterback out there to compete this year is by settling. Deshaun Watson has settled a lot of cases off the field. He has still maintained his innocence, still said he's done nothing wrong. But now, when it comes to your playing future, the best thing is to settle, agree with the NFL, and whether it's 12 games, somewhere in that neighborhood, sign up for it right now and start sitting out. So I'm curious your thoughts here. The NFL is appealing. The NFL is going to, I think at this point, implement a full game suspe- uh, full season suspension for Deshaun Watson. Is settling the only thing that's going to get Deshaun Watson off the field? And also, do you agree with the NFL? Is Deshaun Watson worth being suspended for a full season. Plenty of ways to get involved in the show. Worldwide Sports Radio Network on Facebook is our Facebook page where you can find the live link of the show. Click right there and you can write on the uh, comment section on Facebook. We are on Twitter at Ryan Hickey Show. That's where you can either tweet me or if you go to that handle at Ryan Hickey Show, uh, the live stream of the show is being broadcast right there. We can look at my ugly face on video. Also, if speaking of video on, on YouTube, also at Worldwide Sports Radio Network. So get your thoughts on Deshaun Watson and his future. Now the NFL is appealing the six-game suspension ruling by Judge Sue L. Robinson. We'll get your thoughts on that also when we return. Speaking of punishment, the Miami Dolphins lost a first-round pick and a third-round pick in part for tampering and breaking the rules when it comes to Tom Brady and Sean Payton trying to recruit them on their team this year. Is it worth it? Was the tampering for the Dolphins worth the risk? We'll discuss that when we return. It's Ryan Hickey right here.
on the Worldwide Sports Radio Network. You're, you're, you're listening to the Worldwide Sports Radio Network. Welcome back to the Ryan Hickey Show, right here on the Worldwide Sports Radio Network. And welcome back into the Ryan Hickey Show right here on the Worldwide Sports Radio Network. So a lot of punishment being doled out by the NFL this week, including the Miami Dolphins losing a first and a third round pick in part for tanking allegations, but also in part for tampering with Tom Brady, not once but twice in 2019 and this past offseason, but also as well tampering with Sean Payton while he was under contract with the Saints. But here's the thing. Losing two draft picks, including a first-round pick, it's worth it for the Dolphins. And look at the risk-reward. Right, The reward for what Miami did in skirting the rules and trying to attract and flirt with Tom Brady to get Sean Payton to Miami. The reward of getting both the best quarterback in the NFL, currently right now in Tom Brady, and one of the best offensive minds and overall one of the best head coaches in the game. And Sean Payton, getting them to your team is worth the risk of what the punishment will be, which is what we saw of a first and a third round pick the Dolphins losing. Because guess what? If they were able, I know they didn't, if they though were able to land Brady and land Sean Payton in Miami, the Dolphins next year or, or this upcoming year, I guess, would be Super Bowl contenders. Even in the loaded AFC, the Broncos and the Bills and the Chiefs and the Chargers and the Bengals all loading up. The Dolphins with Sean Payton and Tom Brady would be Super Bowl contenders this upcoming year if they were able to land those two gentlemen. And that's why the risk is worth the reward. Because anytime, in my opinion, you can take a, a turn a team into a Super Bowl contender overnight, that's worth the risk of getting caught and or getting caught and not getting the guy anyway. It's worth losing a first-round pick. I would have done it again if I was the Dolphins. Maybe execute a little bit better. Maybe make the pitch for Tom Brady or to Tom Brady and Sean Payton a little bit more enticing. But I think the Dolphins did the right thing. You go for broke. You try to get the best of the best on your team. If you got to skirt some rules, so be it. They're laughing to the bank if they were able to get those two guys on their roster and lose and then at losing a first round pick. That's no problem. You're still a Super Bowl contender. The risk was worth the reward. And this is a big risk, too, because you look at it, they swung and missed. And now they could truly hurt their franchise moving forward. Because as we know, going into this year, it is a make-or-break season for Tua Tungvalu. Hot take there, right? If he struggles, the Dolphins are going to ship him out of town. If he plays well, they'll keep him on it and maybe finally, and, you know, allow him to be the franchise quarterback they thought he was going to be and actually believe in him for the first time in three years. But this is basically Tua's Miami Dolphins career on the line this season. And now losing that pick is detrimental because – Having two first-round picks like the Dolphins used to have in next year's draft, their own and the one from the 49ers back in the Trey Lance deal, that would have helped them move on up to get a quarterback if they so desire to draft one next year if Tua uh, stinks. Now, if they decide to move on from Tua, they have one of two options, trade for a quarterback or draft a quarterback. Either way, 
having two first round picks would have been a huge boost, would have been a huge um, way for the Dolphins to land the quarterback they want next year if it's not Tua. So losing one of those first-round picks is costly. Now having just one is not as sexy, it's not as enticing as having two, especially when you go to the Dolphins, I mean, barring catastrophe, barring Tua melting down or just getting hurt and this team suffering you know, catastrophic injuries and just completely going under. They're not going to have a top five pick or a top 10 pick. So that pick they're going to, you know, have is not going to be very high. And the ones that they, you know, before they lost their first round pick, they'd have to, you know, use both to kind of trade up again to entice a team to either trade back and allow the Dolphins to move up to get their quarterback or give them two first round picks in order to give a team the, you know, to trade for their quarterback. So having two first round picks was huge for the Dolphins next season in order to acquire the quarterback they want if it's not going to be two. And losing one is costly. But for a quarterback of Brady's status, it's worth the move. Like, honestly, Tom Brady last year led the NFL in every statistical category. Passing yards, passing touchdowns, completions, attempts. I know he literally just turned 45 yesterday. The guy doesn't age. We could talk about father time is undefeated. And you know what he is. But when I, right now when it comes to Tom Brady, he's still not slowing down. Father Tom might win uh, at 47, at 48, maybe even 46. But at least heading into this year, Tom Brady's still strong. He's still looking good. So if you have, in my opinion, what would be the best quarterback heading into 2022, which is Tom Brady, and you are able now to pair him with the offense that the Dolphins have been able to build this offseason in getting Tyreek Hill. In trading or in drafting last year, uh, Jalen Watt in signing Teron Armstead to shore up the left tackle position and having still a pretty good defense. That to me is a recipe for a Super Bowl contender. That is a recipe for a Super Bowl contender because I don't think Tom Brady's slowing down. He has weapons to throw the ball to, he can get the ball out fast. And in an AFC that is loaded, I think Tom Brady's presence would elevate the Dolphins enough to put them in that category. Not the favorite but definitely in that category, for sure. And now when you add Sean Payton as well to that team, you had one of the best head coaches. So now who's able to work with Tom Brady, you don't think though that combo would have success? I do. Bills are a great defense. Broncos are a great defense. Chargers are loading up on defense. The Ravens, the Steelers. The AFC is tough, but I'll tell you this right now. I'm not betting against a head coach-quarterback combo of Sean Payton, and Tom Brady. That's the best head coach quarterback duo you could have in the NFL. I think it's better than Andy Reid, Patrick Mahomes. I think it's better than Aaron Rodgers, Matt LaFleur. Tom Brady and Sean Payne almost were Miami Dolphins. You almost became overnight Super Bowl contenders. You almost, almost became one of the best teams in the NFL in the blink of an eye. The tampering is worth it. And look what Sean Payne did last year. Sean Payton went 9-8 last year with the Saints team that was quarterbacked by four quarterbacks. Jameis Winston, Trevor Simeon, Taysom Hill, Ian Book. Those are the four quarterbacks that Sean Payton is working with. Again, Jameis Winston, Trevor Simeon, Taysom Hill, and Ian Book. Jameis is the only quarterback that would probably be on another team's roster. Forget starting, would just be on another team's practice squad. And somehow Sean Payton was able to spin those four quarterbacks into nine wins. So yeah, you go to Miami, even though roster-wise, I still think it's a step below a lot of the other teams in the AFC. 
you bring Sean Payton over and now pair him with Tom Brady, they're having success. So I give the Dolphins a lot of credit. They went for broke. They saw an opportunity where they could compete immediately. And I respect it. They tried in 2019 to get Tom Brady over there. They swung and missed. Now the roster is better. The team overall is better in 2021. I love the Dolphins saying, hey, Tom, come on over. Here's our plan. We're going to pair you with Sean Payton. We're going for it. I love that because, again, if you are successful, if you make that plan come to fruition, we are talking about the Dolphins right now in a totally different way than we're talking about them this year. Now, with Mike McDaniel, Tua Tungvaluwa, there's a lot of unknown. It's There's obviously a lot of eyeballs and pressure on Tua. But for the Dolphins, it's, what, playoffs, right? That would be considered, I think, a successful season. Make the playoffs and, okay, Tua will be back, and that's like a, a good year. I don't think right now the Dolphins are a playoff team. That's no disrespect to them. That's just how tough the AFC is. They had Tom Brady and Sean Payton. Totally different story. So you had a chance to drastically change the ceiling of your team with one or two moves. I love it. I would have done it. And that's why for me, even though that losing a first-round pick is costly, and especially it's going to be costly if Tua struggles to play well and you need to find a new quarterback next year. That's where it's really going to come back to bite you. But the risk is worth the reward. The reward would have been landing Tom Brady and Sean Payton and becoming Super Bowl contenders like that. The risk, two first, uh, two picks, including a first rounder. Even though the, the Dolphins hurt their ability to get a quarterback next year, even though the Dolphins really could set their team back in a way by not having as much ammo as possible to acquire the best quarterback they possibly can next year, the risk is still worth the reward. I would do it 10 times out of 10 if I was a Dolphins. I respect their aggressiveness. I respect their creativity and saying, go for it. Screw the rules. This is our chance. Sometimes you got to cut corners in order to succeed. Hell, look at the Patriots. They have cut corners. Bill has skirted the rules. Brady has skirted the rules. Guess what? It helped lead to six Super Bowls and nine Super Bowl appearances. They don't regret it. You don't regret anything when you win. So that's why I love the Dolphins. Did I don't think they should regret and be upset about their process this offseason. You swung and missed, but you tried. You swung big. And if you connected, it's a grand slam. Instead, they swung big and struck out. You live with it. At least you try. At least you're swinging the bat, and you weren't sitting there with the bat on your shoulders in a big moment letting pitches go by. They were aggressive. They were the hunters. And they came up short. But I don't think there's any regret from the Dolphins and what they did in order to truly try uh, change the trajectory of their team. So I'm curious your thoughts here. Tweet me at Ryan Hickey Show on Twitter. Right on Facebook, Worldwide Sports Radio Network, or on YouTube, Worldwide Sports Radio Network as well. The Dolphins lost two picks, including a first-round pick in large part for illegally tampering with Tom Brady and Sean Payton last year. Is it worth it? Is the risk of losing two picks worth the reward of almost landing Brady and Payton, the best quarterback currently right now in the NFL, and one of the best head coaches in the NFL? I say yes. How about you? We'll get your thoughts again at Ryan Hickey Show on Twitter or Worldwide Sports Radio Network on Facebook and YouTube. When we return, the MLB trade deadline is in the past. The Padres make the big splash move and not only getting Juan Soto, not only getting Brandon Jury, who made his Padres debut with a, a slam yesterday hitting a granny. They also get Josh Hader. Are the Padres right now the team to beat? In the NL, we'll discuss that as part of a, a new segment on the show, Three Strikes. And on three different topics in Major League Baseball, when we return, listen to the Ryan Hickey Show right here on the Worldwide Sports Radio Network. It is the Worldwide Sports Radio Network.
Welcome back to the Ryan Hickey Show, right here on the Worldwide Sports Radio Network. And welcome back into the Ryan Hickey Show, where else? The Worldwide Sports Radio Network. All right, so MLB trade deadline is in the books as it uh, wrapped up on August 2nd. As we know, some big moves that were made. So where does baseball stand now moving forward? Really no other moves left to make. How do we assess the landscape of baseball moving forward as we kind of head to the home stretch here of the season? Let's do a little brand new segment here, three strikes. I will make three different points coming off of the trade deadline as we again head to August and September baseball. Here's strike number one. After the trade deadline, to me, the Padres are now the team to beat in the National League. I get their 11 and a half games behind the Dodgers for the NL West crown. But I think right now the Padres, after their acquisitions at the deadline, have the perfect balance of power, speed, defense, pitching that a World Series team needs. And this is all under the assumption that Fernando Tatis Jr. is able to come back healthy and be productive. Right? He's missed the entire year so far with a wrist injury, and it's believed, reported, he is going to start a minor league rehab stint starting as soon as this weekend. So even if he needs a few weeks, he should be back by, let's say, September for the home stretch of the Padres. So now you have a 2-3-4 in your lineup next month, potentially in San Diego, of Juan Soto, Fernando Tatis Jr., Manny Machado. Fine, there, there's no better lineup. There's no better 2-3-4 in baseball than Soto, Tatis, Machado. You have power. You have ability to make contact, put the ball in play, hit you know from gap to gap. They don't strike out a ton. Machado's been tremendous this season and really having the best year of so far his short Padres career, but you also have length in the lineup. You have Jake Cronenworth, who's a really solid player. You have Jerks and Profar up at top of the lineup, you know, providing some power, getting on base. This is a deep lineup. It's not just top heavy with two, three, four, seven, eight batters deep, truly that are, that are going to give you a hard time. And they also have a great pitching staff, which is equally, if not even more important, come playoff time. Joe Musgrove's been tremendous so far this season. Hugh Darvish has been a, a great number two as well. It's a great one-two punch to have in San Diego. Their bullpen is, is very solid as well. And now, not only having a solid bullpen before, but now going out and acquiring Josh Hader from the Brewers, one of the best closers in the game right now. That's tremendous. That is a deep and loaded team. So I know the Dodgers all year have been out in front. The Dodgers have been the best team in baseball all season long. And they have one of the best pitching staffs you can have in the game, the Dodgers do. But I like right now what the Padres, the, the blend of talent, pitching, bullpen depth. I really like what San Diego's put together. And you have, again, that 2-3-4 of Soto, Tatis, Jr., Machado. I, for me, favor the Padres over the Dodgers. So you're not going to have home field advantage in the playoffs. You are going to have to go through a gauntlet of a, a playoff uh playoff run where right now this is the brand new format most likely the Padres will be playing the Braves um or the Mets whoever kind of wins the NL East we'll get to that here in a second but the NL East team that finishes second place is probably going to be the team who the Padres do face uh in that opening series of the playoffs that's gonna be tough I think the uh the Padres now to me are the team that's most balanced most well-rounded and I really like a lot of the the youth compared with, uh, blended with uh, the playoff experience that they have. I'm going, for me, 
after this trade deadline with the additions of Josh Hader and the additions of Juan Soto, and you have Fernando Tatis come back, assuming he comes back healthy in about a month or so, three weeks, I mean, the Padres, team to be in the National League going forward. All right, strike number two. We got to stop calling the Yankees World Series contenders. They're not anymore. Biggest reason why is pitching. Baseball is the only sport left of the four major sports where still good defense beats good offense. And when you look at having good defense, when you look at that in the lens of pitching, that's what the Yankees don't have. The Yankees can't rely on their starters. Their bullpen is getting thinner and thinner. And that to me is going to be the, one of the biggest Achilles heels for the Yankees. And that's why I don't think when you look at this team come playoff time, they're going to be a true World Series contender. And let's go for what is Garrett Cole stinks. If you still consider him an ace, he is by far the worst ace in baseball. By far. Getting lit up yet again yesterday. Six runs in the first inning to the Mariners. That's a guy you cannot truly rely on now if you're the Yankees to go out there, give you seven innings, one run ball in a playoff game. If he's your game one starter and you want to get the series off on the right note, he's not the guy you want out there. He's not consistent enough. He's not dominant enough. And frankly, ever since the entire sticky stuff fiasco has, has gone down where he was accused and didn't even hide it really either, back when it was, I would say legal, but let's just say it wasn't policed, but the spider attack and all the sticky stuff, he is not the same pitcher anymore. A lot of his dominance, a lot of his elevated spin rate was because of his grip on the baseball that was helped by now illegal substances. He has not been the same pitcher and not nearly anywhere near consistent for what a guy you're paying $324 million to, to be your ace. So now you tried out Garrett Cole in game one, God bless. You got Frankie Montas as a number two starter. He's had some tough luck in Oakland. Clearly pitches in Yankee Stadium. But outside of that, too, you have Nestor Cortez, who got off to a hot start, made the all-star team. But now you look, as the season lengthens, he has already pitched 106 innings this year. Which I didn't say it right, because that's not exactly a ton. But he's pitched 106 innings this season. That's already a career high. He has never pitched this deep and this long in a season before. And that's concerning, because now you have seen a drop-off in his stuff the last few weeks. And come playoff time, is he going to have any gas left in the tank? I don't think so. Again, if you already have a career-high innings now, in the, in early August, it's August 4th. Are we going to say two months now is going to be fresher and better like it was early in the season? I don't think so. Not how it works. So you know, Nestor Cortez has been great, especially when he got off to that hot start, and, and it has been one of the best Yankee pitchers this season. He's starting to hit a wall and starting to fall off. Luis Severino, who Yankee fans are hoping, you know, is going to make a comeback, hoping to be better as he's on the IL right now. This is a guy that coming into this season, coming into 2021 or 2022. See, I already forget the year. I'm sorry. But this is a guy coming into 2022 has pitched just 18 innings combined since 2018. So we're talking about Nestor Cortez, not, you know, not having the stamina and being fatigued. You have Luis Severino, who now Yankee fans are relying on more than ever to go out there and pitch well in the playoffs. You're relying on a guy who has pitched just 18 innings since 2018 coming to this year. That's concerning. That's an issue. So when you look at pitching, the Yankees' rotation is now a true Achilles heel. 
it is a major, major, major concern come playoff time because, as we know, the pitching is truly a game changer when it comes to winning and losing. Good pitching still beats good hitting. And when you look at the Astros, the Mariners, who have good bats, the Blue Jays, you need pitchers that can miss barrels, swing and miss. Right now, the Yankees don't have a lot of those guys and don't have a lot of them consistently. Michael King going down the bullpen out for the year is a killer. You have Clay Holmes. You really have no one else you could truly feel great about going forward in the bullpen either. So it's not like this is a rotation that's sketchy, but you have a lockdown bullpen. That's going to hurt. The lack of big-time arms is going to hurt the Yankees big time, especially when you look at a team that's owned them in recent time in the Astros. The Yankees, to me, don't have a chance against the Astros. Another reason why can't even call them World Series contenders. Sure, the Yankees have over 70 wins. Best record in the AL. Congrats. Getting you nowhere when the team's standing in your way is a team you can't beat. Going nowhere when two of the best teams you have played this season in the Astros and the Mets, you're 2-7 and seven against. That's the elite teams you're going to be playing in the playoffs, and that's the elite teams the Yankees can't beat. Not to mention, forget just even the pitching. The Yankee lineup is also a concern going into October. It's been great so far this season, but there is a difference between regular season success when it comes to having a good lineup and obviously postseason success. The Yankees, like in years past, it's been a it's been a routine complaint. It's been a routine concern that has still yet to be addressed. It's their home run happy nature. It's their home run or strikeout mentality. That lineup has been an Achilles heel for the Yankees. Aaron Judge has been an MVP this year. Anthony Rizzo has been tremendous. Gleyber Torres had a better than expected year. DJ LeMay, who's an all-star. And John Carlston, now he's hurt, but if he's back in, has had a, a bounce back year. That's a top-heavy lineup. That come playoff time, you get worried, will not be able to execute the small things that win playoff games. And again, against two of the best teams you're going to face in the Mets and the Astros, those small playoff-like instances of moving a runner over, hitting a sacrifice fly, putting the ball in play just to get a run home, those are the small areas that do loom large come playoff time, and those are the small areas the Yankees, uh, the Yankees struggle with. It's no different this year compared to previous years. This is a, a lineup that is built for regular season success, absolutely. This has been a lineup that, to me, is top-heavy, but has, at the top, been great. But come playoff time, not a lineup you feel, again, great about, in part because even though Aaron Judge is having an MVP season, he is the MVP, he's been the best player in baseball this year, it's still the same issues we've been talking about with the Yankees for the last five years. They don't do the little things well. They're too dependent on the home run. It has hurt them every single year in the playoffs. I don't see how this year is different. So they've been off to a great start this year. Things have been one of the best teams in baseball and even better than expected by most. But now you start to look ahead towards October and you kind of look ahead and say, oh, the pitching gives you zero confidence. The hitting, well, the same issues they've had the past few years in the playoffs didn't really change too much. The lineup is basically the same. I'm not calling the Yankees World Series contenders. This is the Astros AL by far. And the Yankees are going to have real problems come playoff time. And finally, Big, big, big series here, Mets and Braves, a five-game series at City Field. I think the NL East will be decided in part this weekend at City Field. If you are the Mets, who are already up right now three and a half games over the Atlanta Braves, if they are able to take at least the series, win three out of five games, I think they lock up the NL East. I do. I think they're able to lock up the NL East this weekend, even though 
They have seven games left between the two teams after this series, so still plenty of time to play all seven games in Atlanta. I think the Mets, if they're able to, again, bare minimum, win three out of five against the Braves, I think they win the NL East in part because this gives that team confidence, a swagger. They're not, they've had most of the season, don't get me wrong, but I think it now finally carries over and means even more when you are constantly hearing about the Braves, the Braves, the Braves, and then you finally beat them. Because that's been the thing. You know, the Mets got off to a hot start. At one point, uh, I believe it was either late May, early June, they were up 10 and a half games on the Braves. The Braves have been unconscious the last two months. June and July, they have just, all they've done is win. Win, win, win. And so now the big talking point, the big session point is, oh, here come the Braves, here come the Braves, the Mets are in trouble. And at one point, the division did get down to a half game lead that the Mets had over the Braves. But here's the thing when I talk about confidence. The Mets have never given up the division lead. And if you are now able uh, to beat a team that everyone's talking about, here come the Braves. Look what they did the trade deadline. They bolstered their team. They bolstered their lineup. This is a team that, you know, now after a slow start, they're waking up and this is their division to win again. If you're the Mets and you are able this weekend to win three to five bare minimum, and again, quiet those doubts, quiet all the hype surrounding the Braves, I think that gives you the confidence you need going forward, even though there's 50 games left, even though you're playing the Braves seven more times in Atlanta, that gives you the confidence you need going forward here to say, you know what? We're not panicking. This is our division. We're the better team, and we're going to win. The Mets have already beaten the Braves two or three times in Atlanta, shorthanded, mind you, about a month ago, right, for the uh, All-Star break. This Mets team is good. Like I don't know who else, who else needs to hear it. The offenses wake up. This is now a deep lineup. They have the best closer in baseball, Edwin Diaz. Jacob DeGrom returning uh, like he did on Tuesday night now gives the Mets the best one-two punch in all of baseball with DeGrom and Scherzer. This team is good. You win three out of five. You send a message to the Braves and the rest of baseball. The Mets are here to stay. That to me is a confidence boost they need that they will get in order to win the division. You win three out of five. You put this lead at bare minimum up to four and a half games in the NL East. I think it's over. I think the Mets are winning the division. So I'm curious your thoughts here on Facebook, Worldwide Sports Network, on Twitter, at Ryan Hickey Show, and at Worldwide Sports Network on YouTube. Are the Padres the team to beat in the NL? Is the NL the Padres to lose right now after acquiring Juan Soto, after getting Josh Hader, and having... Fernando Tatis Jr. returned to the lineup in a few weeks. ICS, how about you? But get your thoughts on uh, on, on Twitter, again, at Ryan Hickey Show, or on Facebook slash YouTube at Worldwide Sports. And Eric, when we return, the NFL offseason obviously now is in the books. Let me ask you this question because we saw a very interesting trend. What is the more important position when it comes to winning games in the NFL? Is it on offense wide receiver or offensive line? We'll discuss that when we return. You listen to Ryan Hickey right here on the Worldwide Sports Radio Network. It is the Worldwide Sports Radio Network. Welcome back to the Ryan Hickey Show right here on the Worldwide Sports Radio Network. Ryan Hickey Show back with you here on the Worldwide Sports Radio Network. All right, before we talk about some NFL news and offseason notes. I I love Twitter. Twitter sucks now. Twitter sucks. And I'm not talking about the tweets or the, the trash that you're seeing. I'm just even talking about 
being able to scroll through Twitter and seeing tweets that make sense. Like, I don't know about you, but for at least for me, for my timeline, when you go to like the home, not the latest tweets, but just the home section, that's supposed to be catered, I guess, to you, but kind of filter out some of the best tweets that have all gone through, uh, you know, since the last time you've been on. I don't need to see tweets from 22 hours ago at the top of my timeline. I don't need to see Adam Schefter tweets from two days ago when I hit, you know, click 50 new tweets sitting there right there in front of me. It, it is by far the most infuriating things. I don't know how you, you find tweets, even just me selfishly. I try to put out tweets um, in segments to kind of promote what we're talking about. So as I just tweeted before, you know, we're going to talk about offensive line versus wide receiver. What's more important to winning now is wide receiver getting, you know, as it increased uh, its importance in the NFL. And so I tweeted that out there from the Ryan Hickey Show account, and I'm looking to retweet it on my personal one at Ryan underscore Hickey number three. I literally just tweet it and I switch accounts. I'm like, all right, it's going to be right at the top. It's not at the top. Even though it is less than a minute ago that I tweeted it, I have to scroll down, scroll down, scroll down, scroll down, scroll down, go past all these tweets that are from hours and hours ago, sometimes days ago, in order to find something I tweeted literally 45 seconds ago. It is infuriating. It is infuriating. I don't really know when it started. I feel like the last six months, Twitter's just gone down the crapper. But my goodness, whoever ends up buying Twitter, please fix the home function. It sucks. Twitter sucks. I love the app. Personally, it's the one I am on by far more than ever. I know there's a lot of trash and a lot of tweets and a lot of Twitter tough guys on there trying to always knock everyone down and seem like they are, you know, the end all be all. I do love Twitter, but man, is it hard to navigate? Is it infuriating to use and to find relevant good tweets out there? It's like they hide all the good tweets. It's so frustrating. But I just want to get that off my chest because at least the whole show, the last, it's happened now two or three times where I'm trying to find tweets that I sent minutes ago. Not even. Couldn't find. Change, please, whoever's buying Twitter, please, eventually. Make it actually useful to where we're not seeing tweets from 22 hours ago at the top of our homepage. No one truly wants that. No one needs that. Speaking of need, has a wide receiver position, has the wide receiver position in the NFL, has that become a need? Saying this offseason has taught us one thing. The wide receiver position is not a luxury position anymore. It's a necessity. The wide receiver position in the NFL, it's now a necessity. It has, in there, in terms of importance to winning, clearly, clearly, quarterback, forget just being the most important position in football. It is the most important position in the uh, in all sports. But when you look at especially in the offensive end of the, uh, end of the football, behind quarterback, I think it used to be offensive line. No more. The second most important position, it's wide receiver. It has truly become now wide receiver, one of the most important positions in all of football. And we have seen that come to fruition just this offseason with the way teams have shelled out trade assets, draft picks, shelling out money, extensions, free agent money in order to get you know young wide receivers on their team and keep them there. Teams are valuing and treating wide receivers like the second most position, uh, second most important position on offense behind only quarterback. And I think the right wide receiver is rightfully so, right behind quarterback in terms of importance. Because what we have seen so far in the last few years in the NFL is that if you have great and multiple weapons on the outside, that has increased a quarterback's development if they're younger and has made you know a great quarterback's life a lot easier compared to having a really good offensive line. I think the Bengals for this past year are the perfect example of that. The main reason why you would say the Bengals got to the Super Bowl 
was right Joe Burrow. And I would agree. But part of the reason what made Joe Burrow so great, what had him have this breakout sophomore season, was the guys he was thrown to. Was the weapons on the outside. Jamar Chase, T. Higgins, Tyler Boyd. They were a huge, huge reason for Joe Burrow's success in 2021. And look, Jamar Chase coming in as a rookie nonetheless. Had a historical season. The by far the best year rookies ever had. 1,400 receiving yards. 13 touchdowns. He made so many big plays where Joe Burrow just got him the ball in space and let Jamar Chase work, and he did the rest. He was unguardable at times and made Joe Burrow's job of just getting the ball out quickly easy as hell. But it wasn't just Jamar Chase, because again, when you have multiple weapons now, and now defenses can't just triple team one wide receiver like teams tried to do with Devontae Adams, let's say. You had other weapons beat you. You had T. Higgins go for over 1,000 yards and six touchdowns this year. You had Tyler Boyd, arguably, who was the... I would, I would say the best third option at receiver in the NFL, 825 yards, five touchdowns. These guys had the success they did. Joe Burrow had the great year he did and got the Bengals to the Super Bowl despite playing behind one of the worst offensive lines in the NFL last year. And the Bengals still made the Super Bowl. Last year, Joe Burrow in 2021 was the most sacked quarterback in the league. 51 times he was taken down. That didn't stop him. That didn't stop the Bengals or derail their chances for making a deep playoff run. Having a great O-line is important. Don't get me wrong. From what we're talking about, building a team from the bottom up. Clearly, it starts at quarterback. You need a great quarterback in order to have success. But I think from there, I think for a long time, at least I have definitely been in this camp. I don't want to speak for you. I'll speak for myself. For me, it was when it comes to development, it comes to building a great team, it was quarterback, offensive line, one and one A. You need a great, obviously, quarterback to have success, but also you need a great offensive line to give them time. And especially for a young quarterback, if they're rookie, second, third year, if you want to actually give them a chance to succeed, they need time. But now I have to change my stance. It's not the case anymore. And just year number two for Joe Burrow, he had the worst offensive line or one of the worst offensive lines in the sport. But because the weapons outside were so talented, because he had Jamar Chase and T. Higgins and Tyler Boyd, along with Joe Mixon and C.J. Uzama, those weapons made Joe Burrow's life easier to the point where they made the Super Bowl last year. Not having the time wasn't a big detriment because Burrow got the ball off fast and, again, got the ball out in space to his playmakers. They did the rest. Even when you look at what the Bengals did to Joe Burrow in his rookie year, where he was sacked over three times a game on average in the 10 games he started in 2020, he tore his ACL because he got the crap beat out of him in his first year because the offensive line couldn't block you and me. They're softer than Charmin toilet paper. Joe Burrow, even himself, said, forget if it's line help. I don't need a lot of time. All I need is a playmaker on the outside. And that's when he was advocating when there was a, ba- a debate between Panay Sewell and Jamar Chase. I'll be honest. I was team Panay Sewell. I thought the Bengals should have drafted Panay Sewell and said they listened to Joe Burrow. They got Jamar Chase. But even Joe Burrow himself, coming off of a torn ACL and getting the crap beat out of him in year number one, was sitting there telling you, look, I've been through it. It's been bad. Get me another receiver. I'll be fine. I'll make the bad offensive line work if you get me another playmaker on the outside to make it work. And he didn't held his promise. It worked. But it's not even just the Bengals, right? Because you can make arguments for one team having success, but not have it be the, the rule going forward or have that just one team having success be an anomaly or an exception to the rule. But it's not just the Bengals where you've seen great you know, receivers come in and change a quarterback's trajectory and improve them more than an offensive line could. Look at Buffalo. Josh Allen right now, right, heading into 2022, 
is one of the best quarterbacks in the NFL without a doubt. But he was, for a large part of his career early on, was very inconsistent, a major question mark, right? The first two years, he was very raw, very up and down, a lot, you know, I would say more bad than good. And even in the year where the Bills made the playoffs in 2019, there was good Josh Allen, made some plays, bad Josh Allen, where he was bad with his decision-making, bad with ball security, and would not make the best choices. All of a sudden, though, going into 2020, the Bills got Josh Allen, a stud number one receiver, when they traded for Stephon Diggs. They got Josh Allen, that alpha dog on the outside. He was missing the first two years of his career. Is it a coincidence? Is it a coincidence that right after, immediately, the Bills get Josh Allen, a stud number one receiver in Stephon Diggs? That year, Josh Allen is the best year of his career. By far the best year of his career. He is the most consistent Cuts down on the turnovers, best decision maker, you know, so far of the four years uh, of his career, MVP candidate, and the Bills go to the AFC title game. Is it a coincidence? I say no. Josh Allen's development was helped in large part to Stephon Diggs. When you have that guy who just throw it up and he makes a play, he's always open. He's a great route runner. He catches the ball and throws to you and he makes plays in space. Do you know how easy that makes a quarterback's life? So much easier than having time and having a great O-line, but no one to throw the ball to. No one you can rely on. The Bills' offensive line was solid. The first two years, Josh Allen was in Buffalo. It wasn't until he got that stud receiver on the outside where his consistency, his explosiveness, his ceiling truly raised. But again, it's not just the Bills. You can point to the Bengals, having their wide receivers make a difference for their quarterback. I think you can point to the Bills and their wide receivers making a difference in their quarterback. How about the Chiefs? How about Patrick Mahomes? Who right now, if you were to start an NFL team tomorrow, I still think a majority would choose Patrick Mahomes to be their guy. Patrick Mahomes' first year as a starter in the NFL in 2018 threw 50 touchdown passes. Is Patrick Mahomes throwing 50 touchdown passes, winning the MVP, and getting the Chiefs to the AFC title game in his first year as a starter, second year in the league, if he didn't have two all pros on offense helping him out, I don't think so. I'm not taking anything away from Patrick Mahomes. His development was sped up. His development was increased when you have the best tight end in the NFL in Travis Kelsey, and you have one of the best wide receivers in the game in Tyreek Hill. Those two additions were massive, massive for Patrick Mahomes' development. If you take both of those guys off the Chiefs, and replace it with an average tight end and an average wide receiver. Is Patrick Mahomes throwing 50 touchdowns, leading the Chiefs to the AFC title game, and winning the MVP? My answer is no. He wouldn't suck. I don't think he'd be that bad. But again, having tremendous weapons on the outside. I know Travis Kelsey is a tight end, but he plays like a receiver. Having two all pros in Kelsey and Hill dramatically increased and helped out and really accelerated Patrick Mahomes' development in the NFL. Even Justin Herbert. Justin Herbert exploded onto the scene. Better in his two years than anyone, I think, truly envisioned so far this early in his career. A large part of that, I think you can chalk up to Keenan Allen, Mike Williams. And he's talking about bad offensive lines. The Chargers have had a bad offensive line. Now, it's gotten better. They put resources into making it better. But especially year one, that offensive line was awful. Absolutely awful. When you have two... Really good receivers, especially one in Keenan Allen and Mike Williams being a big body downfield threat. Justin Herbert didn't need a lot of time and didn't need this stalwart offensive line to give him, you know, time to throw the ball. He had playmakers, you got them the ball, let him work. So when you look around the NFL right now, 
You look at young quarterbacks and what has led to their development and some of the best quarterbacks in the NFL, what has helped get them there? It's been their receivers. It's been the receivers more than the offensive line. Wide receiver has overtaken offensive line as the second most important position in all of offense in the NFL. It used to be a luxury. If you have a great wide receiver, that's great. That's kind of, you know, the cherry on top. Now it's a necessity. And guess what? Teams are viewing wide receivers as a necessity. Look at what they're getting paid. Clearly and obviously, quarterback is and always will be the highest paid position in the NFL, bar none. So when you take the quarterbacks out of this conversation, you look at the next 11 highest paid non-quarterbacks in the NFL, seven of the 11 are wide receivers. Seven of the 11 highest paid non-quarterbacks in the NFL are pass catchers. The other four, edge rushers, outside linebackers. They get after the quarterback, they get paid to sack the quarterback. Nowhere in there are left tackles, which is presumed to be the second most important position outside of quarterback, right? It was quarterback, left tackle, defensive end, or quarterback, defensive end, left tackle, however you want to order two and three. In terms of importance for building your team, teams are telling you with the way they pay star players, teams are now even telling you the way they draft with 11 receivers going in the first round combined of the last two drafts. It is now quarterback, receiver. Wide receiver has skyrocketed in importance. They have overtaken offensive line as the second most important position in all of the NFL. This is a shift. This is a a thought that I don't think was really prevalent around the NFL even a year or so ago. But now we have seen the shift and we've seen wide receivers overtake offensive line as the second most important position group on offense. It's quarterback. And now forget about protecting the quarterback. The second most important thing you got to do as as a GM, as a head coach, Get that quarterback weapons. So I'm curious here, your thoughts. In your mind, has wide receiver overtaken the offensive line position? Is wide receiver now, right after quarterback, most important position on the offense for success? I say yes. How about you? Get your thoughts on Twitter at Ryan Hickey Show. We'll get your thoughts on Facebook, Worldwide Sports Network, and also on YouTube, Worldwide Sports Radio Network as well. When we return, not a lot of quarterback battles in the NFL this year, right? Last year, we had a a ton. Who's going to win? Who's going to lose? This year, we have three quarterback battles going on in Pittsburgh, in Carolina, in Seattle. Who is going to be starting week one for the Steelers, the Seahawks, and the the Panthers? I'll tell you when we return. It's Ryan Hickey right here on the Worldwide Sports Radio Network. It's the Worldwide Sports Radio Network. Welcome back to the Ryan Hickey Show, right here on the Worldwide Sports Radio Network. And welcome back in, Ryan Hickey Show with you on this Thursday. As always, thanks so much for making us a part of your morning. Hopefully we'll make that Thursday go a little bit faster for yours truly. I'm really trying to race through today. Got a nice little beach vacation lined up starting tomorrow. So, man, I cannot lie. Count down the hours already. Uh, nothing better. Nothing better for me in the world than a nice weekend at the beach. I know football season's coming. We're exactly right now one month away from the opening weekend, the opening Saturday in college football, or really week one because you have week zero the week before. So three weeks away from week zero, I'm jacked up, ready to go. But also at the same time, you know, I do love summer. I'm a summer guy. It always goes by way too fast. I can't believe it's August 4th already. 
feel like just yesterday we were talking about Memorial Day weekend coming up here and getting ready to go. And now, you know, it's the countdown or, or the winding down is already on. I don't know yourself. Hopefully still you have some time to enjoy the summer. No need to rush it through. And hopefully you got a nice weekend lined up as well. All right. So we have three quarterback battles here in training camp between the Steelers, the Panthers, and the Seahawks. Who will be starting week number one for all three of those teams? We'll play a little game of starting or camping, right? Because it's it's camp time. You know, they always love the cliches. Oh, gone camping. Training camp's underway. Which quarterback will be starting and who will be camping behind that starter in 2022? Let's start with the Steelers here. Will Mitch Trubisky be the starter? Will he be starting for the for the Steelers week number one or will he be camping behind someone else who will be starting? I think Mitch Trubisky is starting. Mitch Trubisky is the better quarterback compared to Mason Rudolph and Kenny Pickett. He will start week number one for the Steelers. I think right now he's going to start a majority of the games. I don't think he's going to finish the season. But with 17 games this year, I think he will start a majority of the games for the Steelers this season. Look, I'm not telling you Mitch Trubisky is a great quarterback whatsoever. I think, though, he is better than the national perception and sometimes better than he gets credit for. Now, I would say a lot of his struggles so far in his four years in Chicago were on him, but also on Matt Nagy, on bad play calling, on bad play design, on bad offensive line. Like, the Bears are a mess. The Bears this year are aiming to be and on track to be the worst team in football, one of the worst teams in football. The cupboard is very bare. And Matt Nagy, as a head coach, is very headstrong, does not scheme or design plays to fit his team. He does what he wants and expects everyone to adjust to him. That's not how uh, the NFL works. That's not how successful coaches operate. So I'm excited, I'll be honest, to see what Mitch Trubisky can do in, in Pittsburgh. I don't think the Steelers are going to be a very good team. I think their insane run of finishing above or finishing 500 or better since I believe it was 2002 or 2003 is coming to an end. Don't think they're going to finish above 500 this year. I don't think they're going to be a playoff team this year. But in part, I think Mitch Trubisky still is the best option, the best player for the Steelers. And we know the Steelers do run a meritocracy. That they've had a long history of success. Part of that is playing the best guys. I think they will do that this year, even though they took Kenny Pickett in the first round. I don't think that means he's guaranteed the starting job, and I don't think he'll start week one. Because that's, that's the thing about Kenny Pickett. There's two things there. Number one, I am not on the Kenny Pickett hype train. I was never in on him when he's coming out of the draft. If the Colts, you know, they did need a quarterback. Now they eventually, you know, traded for Matt Ryan, but if they didn't, let's say sign a quarterback and they're going to go in the draft, I did not want Kenny Pickett. Because for me, I've seen Kenny Pickett. He has been a player that's been at Pitt five years. I get concerned when a player has one breakout year out of five years. Like the other four years, he's a starter at Pitt. He was pedestrian to average at best. That's not a, a great ratio I feel great about when you are a starter for five years in college, using the COVID year as a benefit for him to play one more year, and having just one year be a breakout year. I think part of that was his age, being just so much older, you know, being 24 years old, so much older than some of the players he's going against, 18, 19-year-olds. I am concerned about his hand size and needing two gloves to throw the football. And I'm also concerned about how this draft class was perceived. Just because you're a first-round quarterback doesn't mean you're a first-round talent. As you know, quarterbacks are bumped up the board because of the importance of the position. I think it is telling. I don't think it's groupthink. I think it's telling that in a desperate NFL that most teams need some sort of quarterback and it's always easy to get the fan base riled up about a young quarterback. I think it's telling that Kenny Pickett went 20th overall 
And then no other team for two and a half rounds after that took a quarterback till Desmond Ritter went in the third round. That's concerning because plenty of teams needed a quarterback. You look at the value of getting a quarterback in the second or third round, you could have done so. And a lot of teams said, no, thanks. We're good. We're going to pass. So taking Kenny Pickett in the first round and, and having him be this most pro-ready quarterback of any uh, quarterback in the class, to me, is still not saying a lot. It doesn't mean he's actually ready to start because even if you're the most pro-ready quarterback in a group of bad quarterbacks, what does that really say? If you're the best of the worst, how good truly are you? So I'm still very, very skeptical about Kenny Pickett having success in the NFL. I don't think he should be given the job in Pittsburgh. And if he can't beat up Mitch Trubisky, you don't play Kenny Pickett. If he can't beat up Mason Rudolph, you don't play Kenny Pickett. Right now, he's third string in training camp. I know it's early. There's still a month to go before the season. Not a great sign. If Mason Rudolph is out playing you, what does that say about so far how good you are? So I think when you add it all up, Mitch Trubisky is going to be the week one starter for the Steelers. He is going to start a majority of the games in Pittsburgh this year. Steelers fans, get ready. It's going to be a rough year no matter who's quarterback. I don't care if it's Pickett or Mason Rudolph or Mitch Trubisky. This team is not a playoff team. They're going to finish under 500. And when the best quarterback you have to run out there, the most talented quarterback is Mitch Trubisky. That is concerning, but Mitch Trubisky will be the quarterback starting week one for the Steelers. How about Sam Darnold, the incumbent starter in Carolina? Will he be starting week one or camping? Three, he's camping. This is Baker Mayfield's job. He is going to beat Sam Darnold out. I know they've been splitting reps. You know, Sam Darnold takes first team reps one day. Then Baker Mayfield takes first team reps the next day. I know even though the scheme has changed, right? Ben McAdoo is a brand new offensive coordinator. But even though Sam Darnold has been you know with the Panthers for now going on year number two and has had the playbook in his hands longer than Baker Mayfield has. I think Baker Mayfield's going to close that gap quickly here and he'll be the week one starter for Carolina. And if he can't, like at Baker Mayfield, if you listen to the show, you know me. I'm a Baker fan. I'm a Baker believer. I think he got the short end of the stick uh, or a raw deal in Cleveland. I think he's a lot better than what he showed last year. I think the injury to his shoulder was a big reason why he struggled in 2021. But I will say this. If he can't beat out Sam Darnold, if Sam Darnold, who was awful last year, who was brutal with the Jets, if Baker Mayfield can't beat out Sam Darnold, Baker's career is over. That's not hyperbole. That's you know not overstating it. Baker Mayfield's career is over. If he cannot beat out Sam Darnold to win the starting job. Sam Darnold stinks. We have seen enough. We've seen four years of Sam Darnold. He stinks. I tried to give him the benefit of the doubt with the Jets. Because I thought the Jets were just a total dumpster fire and screwed him over. And now you go to Carolina in a better situation. With a you know more organizational for you know less chaos I should say. A better overall team. And you still revert back to the same mistakes. You're still doing the stupid decisions, not reading defenses, making horrendous, horrendous throws. That's on you. If Baker Mayfield can't overcome uh, and beat out a guy in Sam Darnold, you're beating out no one, man. Your career is done. So I think Baker Mayfield is absolutely good enough to win this job. I think he will win this job. And that's a guy I think this year Baker Mayfield is going to show you he is more 2020 Baker. The guy who led the Browns to the playoffs for the first time in almost 20 years. The guy who won the Browns a playoff game for the first time in 26 years. 
and played his best football down the stretch of 2020 where the final eight games of the season, including the playoffs, he had 15 touchdowns or two picks. That's a guy I think you are going to see more of in Carolina this year than the 2021 Baker that was making bad throws, throwing interceptions, having no zip on the ball, poor accuracy, and leading to losses uh, in a very disappointing season for the Browns. We'll see more 2020 Baker, more playoff Baker with the with the Carolina Panthers than 2021. I think the Panthers are a playoff team. I do. With Baker Mayfield on the team now, I think they are going to get the seventh and final wild card spot in the NFC. And for the Seahawks, let me ask you this question. Who will be starting week one for the Seahawks? Will Geno Smith, we'll use him as the question. Will Geno Smith be starting or will he be camping behind Drew Locke? Here's my answer. It doesn't matter. It truly doesn't matter. It doesn't matter if Geno Smith is the starter week one. It doesn't matter if Drew Locke is the starter week one. This team is going to stink. This team is going to lose a lot of games, and that is a good thing for Seattle. Seattle should have no business trying to win this year because Seattle should have one goal in mind. Put yourself in a position to get Bryce Young, CJ Stroud, or whatever other quarterback explodes uh, onto the scene in this season. That should be the only goal. You have two first-round picks in next year's draft. Position yourself to where you can either get a top-five pick just for your record, or if you're able to trade up, use those two first-round picks to trade up to get into the top five or the top three. The Seahawks are going to stink, and that is a good thing for their future. So that's why it doesn't matter whether Geno Smith starts week one or Drew Locke. One, because both are going to stink, but also, two, I think both are going to play a lot this year. I think we're going to see musical chairs at the quarterback position in Seattle, in part because... Neither are very good. So Geno Smith will start, let's say, three or four games. I think he will he will be the week one starter. And all of a sudden, he's going to stink. There'll be one and three, 0 oh and four. Then it's going to be Drew Locke time coming off the bench again, trying to save the day. He'll be able to do it. Then it's going to go back to Geno Smith and back to Drew Locke. Slip, snap, slip, snap, slip, snap. If you're an office fan, you get that reference. But it doesn't matter who's going to play because I think or who's going to start week one because neither are very good. Both of them are going to play this year, and both are going to – play badly, and lead to a ton of losses in Seattle. Losing is going to be a good thing for Seattle this season. They need a reset. They need a quarterback. They can truly rely on now going forward to turn this team around. Running the ball and playing good defense the way Pete Carroll wants to win games is not the formula for success in 2022. And I think he's going to learn that the hard way when you have bad quarterback play. Because in theory, in theory, Pete Carroll's idea of winning shouldn't be impacted, or, or the Seahawks record, I should say, shouldn't be impacted by Russell Wilson leaving. Because again, Russell, uh, Pete Carroll didn't trust Russell Wilson. He didn't want him doing too much. He viewed Russell Wilson as a quarterback that was just like, please don't lose this the game. We have a good enough defense, we have a good enough running game, rush just don't lose this the game by throwing picks. That is not logical. That is not realistic. He neutered, Pete Carroll did, Russell Wilson and his abilities. So now, in theory... If Pete Carroll truly wants to see his style of play work, there should be no drop-off. Whether it's Geno Smith or it's Drew Locke, the Seattle Seahawks, in Pete Carroll's mind and his expectations, should win. You want to run the ball, play good defense. Go for it, buddy. The quarterback play should have nothing to do with your record. Pete Carroll's going to learn the hard way this year. Running the ball, playing good defense, while relying on a bad defense and no running game, is not going to get you far. You're going to need a quarterback, which is why I think the Seahawks losing, losing, losing is actually be a good thing for them this year. So, to me, it doesn't matter who's going to start week one for Seattle. I'm going to go Geno Smith, be their opening day starter. 
I think Baker Mayfield will be starting week one for the Panthers. And this is a playoff team. I think Mitch Trubisky will be the starter week one for Pittsburgh. And he will start a majority of the games for the Steelers in 2022. So I'm curious your thoughts here. Who will be the Steelers week one quarterback? Who will be the Panthers week one quarterback? Who will be the Seattle Seahawks week one starter? We'll get your thoughts on Twitter at Ryan Hickey Show, on Facebook, Worldwide Sports Network, or on YouTube, Worldwide Sports Radio Network. When we return, the NFL made it official yesterday. They are appealing the six-game suspension for Deshaun Watson. What's next for the Browns? What's next for Watson? Should they try to come to a settlement before Roger Goodell comes to a ruling on what the suspension will be. We'll discuss that when we return. It's Ryan Hickey Radio on the Worldwide Sports Radio Network. It's the Worldwide Sports Radio Network. Welcome back to the Ryan Hickey Show. Right here on the Worldwide Sports Radio Network. Oh, we're pumping it up here on a Thursday morning. Welcome on in. Ryan Hickey Show with you right here, taking to the top of the hour. All right. So the NFL is appealing Deshaun Watson's six-game suspension made by Judge Sue L. Robinson. And now they will hand down their own punishment as Roger Goodell or his appointee sees fit. There's one thing, if we when we talk about playing time, right, when it comes to how does it impact the Browns and Deshaun Watson for the 2022 season specifically, there's only one choice the Browns and Deshaun Watson have to do. Settle. They have to settle. You cannot allow Roger Goodell to make a decision and impose his punishment because you can kiss the 2022 season goodbye then if you're the Browns and if you're Deshaun Watson and your season is cooked. Because we all expect, we all anticipate, the NFL has been has not been shy about wanting to lay the hammer down on Deshaun Watson, and rightfully so. I think the NFL is in the right here. I think the NFL is doing the right thing in appealing the six-game suspension, trying to impose a harsher punishment, and trying to keep Deshaun Watson off the field for the entire season. I think they're doing the right thing. But when you look at it from a team perspective, when you look at it from an on-the-field perspective, right? How does this impact Deshaun Watson? How does this impact the Browns? And how do you get, if you're a Browns fan, your quarterback on the field and still stay competitive in 2022, the only way to do so is by settling. Because guess what? If Roger Goodell or his appointee is allowed to make the decision, we all assume it's going to be an indefinite suspension of at least a year. And the only thing then, the NFL Players Association... The Browns and Deshaun Watson could do. The only thing they have left to do is sue the NFL and take him to court. But here's the thing. The NFL doesn't lose in court. Ask Tom Brady, who took the NFL to court over his four-game deflate gate uh, suspension. Guess what? Tom Brady served that four-game suspension. He didn't win in court. Ezekiel Elliott took the NFL to court over his six-game suspension over domestic violence. Guess what? Ezekiel Elliott served that uh, six-game suspension he didn't win in court. This is the thing. When you sue the NFL, especially with this new collective bargaining agreement and the agreement that the NFL and the NFL Players Association agreed to, when the NFLPA and Deshaun Watson sue the NFL, they are not going to court asking the courts to say, please, you know, what do you think? Should it be a 17-game suspension or do you think it should be less? All the courts are looking at, from my understanding, is the process of the NFL getting to 17 games. And this is the thing and why the NFLPA is not going to win that battle. The courts are looking at the written language that both sides agree to. Both the NFL and the NFLPA agreed 
We will have an independent arbiter hear the case first. That is what Sue L. Robinson did. The NFL made their arguments as to why Deshaun Watson should be suspended for a full year. Deshaun Watson and the NFLPA, they made their arguments as to why Deshaun Watson shouldn't be suspended at all. Sue Robinson heard those arguments and made her decision of six games. Both sides agreed that's a process we're going to go to. Both sides also agreed that each side has the right to appeal. The NFLPA could appeal the decision. The NFL could appeal the decision. NFLPA shows not to appeal the decision. The NFL is, as we know. And both sides agreed. The players and the Players Association agreed that if an appeal by the NFL is made, the decision will be made by either Roger Goodell or someone he appoints. Roger Goodell's right-hand man is not going to appoint someone that's going to be in favor of the NFLPA. Let's just get that out there. But the NFL is then going to make their decision, and that decision is binding. That decision is final. That is what the courts are looking at. And right now, the NFL is playing it by the book. Sue L. Robinson heard the arguments, made her decision, gave the suspension. The NFL now is appealing. And again, according to the CBA that was signed and agreed upon by both sides, the verdict Roger Goodell and the NFL will make is binding and final. So if they do decide, it's going to be an indefinite suspension of at least one year. The NFLPA can sue. They can take Deshaun Watson to court. They're not winning. They're not winning that battle because they agreed what Roger Goodell in the end says goes. Is it fair? No, but that's what they agreed to. You sign the document, it's in writing, and the NFL followed that letter of the law to a T, and that's what the courts are going to say. So by going to court, if the NFL PA and Deshaun Watson sue the NFL, if the NFL decides to increase the, uh, increase the suspension and go to a year, all you're doing is hurting yourself because now if you sue the NFL, you most likely for Deshaun Watson will be allowed to play early on. So you'll play week one, you'll play week two. This is not going to be decided in court in a day or so. This is going to drag out months. Tom Brady's court case against the NFL dragged out for a year. Ezekiel Elliott started in August and ended in uh, November. This is going to take a while. But the thing is, every week that passes, every game Deshaun Watson plays in in 2022, he is going to miss in 2023. The suspension by the NFL, whatever they impose, I don't think is going to be overturned by the court. I don't think it's going to be lessened in any which way. So if Deshaun Watson and the NFL PA want to sue the NFL, they're only hurting themselves because now it's just lengthening the time into 2023 that Deshaun Watson's suspension goes into. And that's the worst case scenario for the Browns. If you're the Browns, you clearly want Deshaun Watson on the field this year. But I think more than that, more than that, you don't want this lingering into 2023. Whatever suspension it is, six games, 12 games, a full year. And if you're the Browns, you want to just deal with it and eat it in this season, in 2022, put it all behind you, and then 2023, go into that season knowing Deshaun Watson is going to play. You don't want a full season suspension coming down from the NFL, which I think is inevitable. Deshaun Watson and the NFL PA suing the NFL, having this go to court, having this take two or three months, having the suspension be upheld, and then have Deshaun Watson start serving that suspension in, I don't know, let's say middle October, early November, and have that carry over into next year. That is the worst case scenario for the Browns, which is why settling is the only way. Before Roger Goodell or his appointee make this uh, decision on a punishment, settle. There's a 12-game settlement on the table before Sue L. Robinson heard the case. I would guess... That 12-game settlement is still an option for Deshaun Watson right now. I would take it. I would sprint 
to take it if I'm Deshaun Watson and the Browns. Sit out 12 games, still have a chance to play at some point in 2022 and salvage the end of the season. Trade for Jimmy G to tread water up until Deshaun Watson can return. But most importantly, don't let this drag out into 2023. That should be the main motivation for the Browns and Deshaun Watson when it comes to getting on the field as fast as possible. Settle. That's your only hope. If you're Deshaun Watson right now and you're the Browns when it comes to trying to get him back on the field and being competitive again quickly. So that'll do it for this edition of the Ryan Hickey Show. As always, appreciate you making us a part of your Thursday. Have a tremendous weekend. We will be back a week from today. You can check me out in between now and then on CBS Sports Radio. Should be hosting a few shows uh, next week. I'll keep you updated that on Twitter. So make sure you're following at Ryan Hickey Show or my personal Ryan underscore Hickey and the number three. Have a great weekend as always. Stay safe, stay sane, and we'll talk to you next Thursday right here on the Worldwide Sports Radio Network. You're, you're, you're listening to the Worldwide Sports Radio Network.